0: Hello and welcome back to the National Association for Primary Education podcast. My name is Mark Taylor and today I'm delighted to be joined by Marcus Wolofsky, who's a patron of NAEP and is from Brinesden Square Foundation. Now Marcus is a financier turned tech turned education facilitator. He's a host of a TEDx conferences around Europe and works with students across the UK. So we've got lots to talk about and we were just chatting just before we came on air about how it's more a load of um, happy coincidences and opportunities rather than um, a well-thought-out plan. So I'm absolutely fascinated, Marcus, by how this story is going to go. So thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So why don't we talk with that initial background in terms of how did it become financier turned tech, turned education facilitator?
1: Wow. Um, so it all goes back to – so I had a, one of those funny childhoods and I was in a complex family relationship. Well, it was family. I was a single mother. Um, My father um, ultimately beat her and me up so badly that uh, she ultimately died, and I was looked after by my grandmother. So I was sort of on my own, uh, paid my way through university, um, and I chose to study economics um, at Bristol um, and become a chartered accountant. Uh, But in my time of being a chartered accountant, I really wanted to do something else. Uh, And so when the when the opportunity came, I left one big firm, joined another and became director of recruitment as well as director in corporate finance. And as recruitment, um, I met lots and lots and lots of students and lots of universities. So when I moved on from uh, from a, a commercial financier world and joined the world of real estate, where I joined a embryonic organization called Stanhope, and we went on to develop and build Broadgate, and Ludgate, and Stockley Park, and a few others. Um, I kept on all the connections I had with students. And so I was flying to different countries um, each weekend. In fact, once I did 48 48 consecutive weekends in different countries, paid for by students for me to talk about opportunities beyond university. And and that really gave me an insight that at a lot of schools around the world, there's an awful lot of teaching which is done academically, but not very much about what you can do with it. And so and so the gap between the world of education and the world beyond education it was growing. And I think now it's grown a heck of a heck of a lot further. So it became it became fairly fairly an easy shift from the world of real estate into a friend of mine who had set up a, a software company. So I joined him and we built it from two to 140 people until we sold it. And, and, and at that moment I decided I really wanted to do something. And it just coincidentally happened that one of my real estate partners wanted to do some things in the world of education. So I said, well, let's well let's help you. Let's do some stuff on on schools. Uh, And at the time, there was something called PFI and something called Building Schools for the Future. Um, And so and so I led them into let's let's get all that lot moving. And and I set up a tiny organization to do that. And uh, five thousand million pounds later, we realized that what we want to do was to change education as a result of building new buildings, um, because we really thought that that would help. Um, and in fact, all that happens is that the schools were doing the same old stuff as they did in the previous buildings, but this time in a slightly fancier new building, which, funnily enough, was less robust than the old building. <laughs> uh, and and, and, and that, that sort of like big dawn of insight <clears throat> happened to me um, as I realized that in a lot of cases, a heck of a lot of people who are in the world of education have really confined themselves to the world of education in the the typical pathway. That's not all of them, but a typical pathway is school, university, school. And and so the potential exists for the educators to be preparing people a world which they have observed, but not a world which they've participated in. Um, And as today the world is moving so terribly quickly, an awful lot of educators find themselves slightly wrong-footed And the worst educators respond to that by saying, forget all that, this is what's important. You know, it's exams which are important and success which is important and sats which are important in your future life. And the rest of us know that's not true. What's important are creativity and skill sets and the ability to talk to people and actually be nice and to take action and not to sit back and and complain, um, but to actually do things. That's why we employ people. We employ people for what they can do, not what necessarily what they have done. What they have done is just simply an indicator. Um, so I started uh, trying to campaign a little bit. I, I led some uh, keynotes for the National Association of Head Teachers and ASCL and uh, NAEP and, and so on. Um, I became governor of a number of schools, a number of multi-academy trusts, um, and I realized actually when I when I uh, in, in order not to just be knocking my head against a brick wall, why don't I just work with some students. Um, and so far, I've been lucky enough to work with just over 100,000 um, across the UK, and a few in in Morocco, and a few in Republic of South Africa, and a few in the United States. I mean, these are just in, in the 1000s. In the um, and and set up a a sort of a foundation to really make that work and i'm so proud of the successes which our students have had as as we give them a a glimpse into the world beyond school and also give teachers a glimpse into what students are capable of without being told what to do and without following rules and 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 the apparent regulations and and it's fascinating
0: Um, and that's what i do there are a couple of things there that i find really interesting one as a parent watching our children go through school and getting involved in school not quite as far as being a governor because I stopped myself at that point for the reasons I think you're probably going to explain now but just sort of understanding what you sort of said about hitting your head against a brick wall what was that like and and why did you feel that was the case
1: um well the brick wall where people say well we're not you're not a teacher um so you know It's interesting what you say, but it's not relevant. Um, You know, we have very tight guidelines on what we have to do. I mean, I met Michael Wilshaw a number of times and Amanda Spielman, and, and genuinely, they're really good people. But they are they are struggling. All of us are struggling on how to identify whether the huge amount of public money which we're spending on state education achieves results. It's just that the results which we're testing and which we're measuring are the results which the education community has determined are the important ones and not the results which everybody else has determined. Um, Andrea Schleiser, who runs uh, PISA, um, I've know, I know really well. Um, and if you go back, gosh, I think it was 15 years ago with PISA 2004 um, when when he, he came out, it's buried in the report, but it sort of says that the the kind of skills that are easiest to test and easiest to teach are no longer sufficient to prepare young people for the world beyond school. Um, and I think that's absolutely true. And so an awful lot of teachers around the place, teachers are frustrated and that they are being forced apparently to teach stuff. They are, they are deluged in, in requirements for writing up what they've done um, beforehand and afterwards and data um, and actually what they want to do is they want to inspire kids, but they're finding themselves unable to inspire kids because of what they perceive are the legislation and the requirements around them. And I found that to be soul destroying. But of course, as an independent and not committed to anything, I can just say, well, to hell with it. Why don't I do something else um, and see if I can make a change happen by dealing with students directly from which I've had is getting schools to realize that this does not deviate from the requirement to teach, and what I do is I try to inspire kids in wanting to learn, which might not be actually what you're choosing to teach at this minute.
0: Yeah, and how do you find those two things go hand in hand in hand? Are there are there many teachers and educational establishments that can recognise that, or do they just feel like Um, if you go in, for example, and do a workshop day or anything like that, that you're just getting in the way or taking time away from the stuff that needs to be done?
1: Yeah, sadly, I think that some teachers need to be... Rather than taking the risk of doing something in the hope that it works, they're prepared to continue doing stuff which they know doesn't work as well as it could do, but at least I'm not putting myself at risk for changing what we're doing. Once teachers have seen the results of what we do, they're sold, completely sold. Um, but the but the challenge for us is an awful lot of teachers have found themselves to be compliant. They moan like hell in a lot of cases, but they're still compliant. And I think that's because they require kids to be compliant and they find it quite hard when kids aren't. I, I, if it's okay, Mark, I can give you an example. Um, one of the projects which we just started is with looked-after students um, in and around uh, the Midlands, uh, quite a few of them actually, a couple of hundred, um, and, uh, and the very best results are from looked-after students who are also in PRUs, in pupil referral units. Um, they are it's so feisty, so smart that they've been kicked out of their schools for being, I suppose, rebellious. And that's exactly the sort of people um, who've got creative skills and real pizzazz and actually a bit of chutzpah, um, chutzpah. Uh, and, uh, and they're marvelous. And, and once you can, you can help gear them a little bit to say, look, if you want to be successful in life, you just got to pass these crappy exams. You know, you just got to get through the ruddy things, but that's not the whole purpose. The purpose is because those give you a few badges of honor. It doesn't really matter what you do with them later. Uh, but you just need those badges because the education community requires them. So just do it. Um on the way. And and what a lot of them tend to find, and I've had emails from kids saying, Oh my goodness, um I didn't do as I didn't do what I hoped in my exams. You know, I was I was expecting to get sort of grades uh four and five, and I got ruddy nines. I overshot. <laughs>
0: and uh, i i i i love that and i uh, and i suspect the the issue is, is the fact they don't have enough of these experiences to put that in perspective. Because from the moment you start school, which is what now at four, not even taking sort of nursery and, and people um, sort of going into sort of childcare early on, all the way through to your eighteen and beyond, it's all about the test. It's all about the system, like you're saying. When you hear that day in day out, it's quite hard to have that perspective, isn't it? Unless you happen to be in a family that can support you in that, or be around other people that understand.
1: Yes. Um, And I suppose if you are lucky enough to be, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but if you're teaching in a school where the majority of parents um, have dinner with their children sitting over over a lunch table or a dinner table and talking about the fineries of fatty tuna sashimi um, versus uh, udon noodles, um, then the chances are that that what you are teaching or what you're what you are guiding kids into is put into perspective by the parental influences, and so by osmosis those students can put the two together. Um, if, however, you are teaching in a in a in an environment where a lot of the kids go home into dysfunctional parents, they might not have places to sleep until one of the parents vacates the sofa. They might be in an environment where the, the parents don't care about them don't really want them they're just an annoyance in the way Um, then that doesn't happen Um, and so and so I think the stress for a lot of parents is dealing with the aspirations of sorry the stress of a lot of teachers is dealing with the aspirations of their kids and the behaviors of their kids which are really developed from the aspirations of their parents or guardians or carers um, and I think
0: that's where the problems arise. Now, you, you may understand this from the sorts of people that you said that you've been able to speak to in terms of of why you think the education system is how it is at the moment. And I know it's, it's like a big ship, it's hard to turn. Um, But when it was originally sort of mass education was set up, it was serving a purpose, wasn't it, in terms of educating people so they could get into the workforce, so it could help the economy. And it had sort of quite a clear picture. And we we know life has moved on since then. But as it started in that way, why do you think it is that people haven't been able to then turn the ship enough to realise that what we need in order to support the economy, to support... Um, people going into employment in the modern age why it hasn't reflected that to actually achieve anything because what as we've talked about already the one thing we know is it isn't supporting them to do that it's not supporting businesses it's also not supporting financially what it needs to do if you talk about well-being and mental health and those sorts of things which obviously on the increase as well which I suspect is mainly due to the fact that as you've explained, you've got children who've got this attitude and understanding of what they know life is all about, but in a, in a box where they have to do something where they're almost constrained. So can you sort of pick that up a, a little bit? Um, well,
1: I'll go back to that same old thing. So in the UK, if we just take the UK, for example, we've got a population of what about 65 million and we've got about 600,000 people engaged in the world of education. Um, but those 600,000 people are not representative of the other 64.4 million um, in society. In fact, they are a peculiar subset, and that subset tends to be you know, school, university, school. There are some outliers there. There are two things which are getting in the way. The, the whole concept of safeguarding. Um, which is effectively to isolate schools from the rest of their society through fences, gates, and queuing up to come in and see your kids. Um, and in some respects, safeguarding the, the teaching profession, by the way, of the qualifications which are required in order to be loose in front of kids, means that almost accidentally, the unintended consequences of all of that, from the unions through to the requirements of pgcs pgsse and or nqt there's the whole training program to be a teacher means that a lot of people who are perfectly capable of educating find themselves excluded because they don't want to spend a year of their lives or two years of their lives doing a teaching qualification you know what they're doing is they're running an organization um whether that organization is for profit or not for profit whether it's a whether it's in the medicine or it's in science or or just in manufacturing they find themselves excluded to the extent that the, that the ability for students to really see where the world is going and how to access these opportunities is sort of denied. And I think that's the problem. The problem is that the, by accident, the unintended consequences are to separate the world of education from the world of everybody else. It's just the world of everybody else It's much much, much bigger than the world of education with totally different sets of requirements and assessments
0: and the thing that always I always think of when we talk about these sorts of things is um, we live in a village, and the village school went from very small village school to having to grow. Um, to support more pupils, so had money given to it, extended the buildings, had the fence put round and all of that. And I remember the first day that our youngest then went into school once it was all finished, and she said, it's like going into prison. (laughs) And I thought (laughs) that that is kind of sort of the feeling of it. You know, you, you go through the gates, it shuts... And 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 there is that sense of of, of being isolated, exactly as you said, and, and and that comes across from just a young child, you know, just from what they see, let alone sort of those other external factors too.
1: Well, if you want to um, if you want to see how that can happen, if you look at most architectural practices, major architectural practices, the departments which are looking at education are very close, if not the same, as the departments which are looking at penitentiary, because. If you look at the world of education, the world of penitentiary, we divide people up into small groups. Um, We put them into cells. In a a penitentiary, the cells might be two or three people. In a school, the cell might be 25 or 30 people. Um, We have set times for eating. We have set times for going to the loo. Um, We have uh, exercise. So we call them playgrounds or exercise yards, and when you think about it, they're pretty much the same. In a penitentiary, it's to keep people in, and in school, it's to keep people out. Um, so, uh, so it's not surprising that we see the same sort of same sort of things and the same sort of camera systems and the same sort of surveillance systems in both. It's not surprising.
0: Do you think the the key moving forward is is actually to be able to change the system in some way to make it a lot less like that or is it a combination of that and the sorts of work that you're doing so that we can empower the children to see there is life beyond just what they see in school and actually they can take a little bit of opportunity and a bit of understanding themselves (coughs) excuse me a bit of understanding themselves so that they can steer their own ship as it were because that's a much easier thing to do in the now isn't it than what we hope schools might look like in five ten or fifteen years
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think we have a we have a few a few issues. The the, the primary, the primary thing is that the world outside of school is moving so much faster than the world inside school. Um, We have exponential growth. So right now we're speaking on Skype on um, on voice. Um, But but the world is moving on on. And we're just doing that because of bandwidth. In fact, bandwidth is causing us to do that. A heck of a lot of schools. Don't use uh, the technology which the rest of us use. They don't FaceTime. They don't. They don't run lessons online. They. A lot of them don't even. Wouldn't even dream of it. The other thing is that a lot of teachers find themselves, I think, because of safeguarding, that they don't use the 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 same tools as their students use. They they might find themselves not having not being on Facebook. They might not be on LinkedIn. They might not be on all those all those connections. Now, if you go onto most major law firms, and you can find the CVs of all the people you might be dealing with the same with the financial financial firms, the same with banks, you can find out people's details, you can see where they've come from, what their background is, what their history is, and all the rest of it. It's very hard to do that with with uh, with something which is much more important with your teachers. So Mark, I'll ask you, do you know the CVs of the teachers who your kids are going to see and interacting with every day?
0: No, absolutely not.
1: If you knew their CVs and you knew their backgrounds, would that make a difference in the way in which you interact with them?
0: I I guess it would in some ways. I mean, it depends if we're talking primary or secondary. Ours, all three of ours now are now in the secondary sector. Um, we're a couple of years out of primary. I think. When when they were in primary, I knew much more about the teacher because I was quite proactive in asking questions. So I generally sort of found out more and I was able to try and sort of steer conversations and have conversations, which I thought were important, even though they kind of went, as we've been talking about, against the system that was in place. I think as a parent um, with children in secondary, it's much harder because you feel like you've got a lot less control and a lot less chance of actually being involved
1: so mark in your in your with your with your students going to a secondary school, do you think the teachers in that school are aware that you are a classical percussionist um, almost certainly not so
0: i mean that 's just foolish isn 't it absolutely <laughs> absolutely
1: I think we can replicate that across the country
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and 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 just to to follow on from that, I think what I have found whenever i 've tried to Whenever I've tried to show up authentically as me and say, "Look, this is who I am, and this is the skills I've got," can I help? Often you get a kind of, "Ah, oh, but you're threatening me and what I've got to do," or um, "Actually, I can't, I can't cope with this, so I just need you not to be around because that's going to get in the way of what I need to do." Um, and, and in both ways, I get frustrated quite quickly and and which is why I really related to your kind of heading banging your head against a brick wall kind of scenario because actually it's much easier to sort of take a step back and try and facilitate what as parents we think is important and and get our message across in a more sort of holistic way through the home life rather than trying to interfere too much directly within school itself
1: yes and I would guess but you can ask, ask, uh, would you find it easier to have that conversation if you wanted to with primary or at the secondary phase?
0: I think it's easier in primary because I think because of the age of the children, you spend more time in school. Um, So you're in the playground, you're picking up, um, you have more access to the the teacher generally who is who is teaching your child because there are so many in secondary it's much harder that they are much more open in terms of having an email these days so you can often email the teacher and ask anything but it's generally related to what it is that they're doing yes i I so <clears throat> I tend to
1: find that primary phase teachers are much more open to off the wall thinking and talking to people Primarily because they're interested in developing the child um, into whatever future there might be, they're starting to see the development of the child in a much wider toolkit, um, a much wider focus than at secondary, where it starts becoming, I'm not teaching you to be a person, I'm teaching you to be able to pass an exam in my subject. Um, even to the extent that I might not actually keep myself up to up to date in my subject, really, I'll keep myself up to date in how to teach my subject, which may be different. So, I've tended to find that primary is much more open. Um, I, I guess what would be nice is if we could if we could take the skill set, which is developed so well at the primary phase, and educate, teachers in secondary as to how to look beyond the subject and look at the person and how do I help you develop as a person, even if you don't like my subject, but um, but I, I want to get you to understand why I chose my subject and how I made those decisions in order to help you decide what decisions you're going to make. And I think that's where, if anything, secondary uh,
0: lies a long way behind the developments in primary. And do you think that's been exasperated a little bit by the fact that you have that direct cut-off between primary and secondary? Actually, when you have middle schools and that kind of thing, there was a little bit more of an organic shift. Um, Well, it made it easier, I think, for students
1: to see that it's not quite so binary, (laughs) Um, because it is alarmingly binary. Um, but actually, you can, you can always extend it into, I mean, one of my one of my issues with primary is that the, you might say year three are all the kids in this age, but they're not. Some are only just in that age and, and some are very nearly the next year. So we have this arbitrary peculiarity of cutoff um, as opposed to being analog. You know, it's 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 like digital. You're in or you're out um, and, you, and there's no halfway point. So so you know, we're all we're all we're all failing a little bit in that, in this desire to compartmentalize into people
0: into nice easy, easy boxes. And let's talk a little bit about nape specifically now. I I feel that it's especially in in the current times, we 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 talked a little bit about the technology and of course that's come to the fore much more in recent weeks as we're currently while we're recording still in lockdown here in the UK. Um but the idea that maybe education won't look quite the same after this, but also, I think, on a more general level, actually sort of galvanising a voice of people who believe in the sorts of things that we're talking about and a way of actually making that part of the education system itself. Um, so, so is that your thinking? Is that one of the reasons you were happy to become a patron of NAPE and, and the sorts of things that the organisation stands for?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There you go, non, a non-political, no, no politician's answer. The answer is
0: yes, that's why. <laughs> And and, and that, that's one that's one of the real benefits of, of NAPE, it is non it's non political, it's a charity. It, it's here really to give a voice um to all those people who think along those roads, which is one of the reasons that we're really keen for, for more and more people to engage, so that we can have a, a unified voice to be able to when we do get the opportunity to speak to ministers or or people in the education world, that we can actually say look, this is what people are believing more and more. I think we're all striving for
1: a voice of, of reason and sense, as opposed to a voice, which is towing the party line, um, largely political, uh, by accident or by or by or by desire. Um, So, so I think, if we turn back to technology, the world today, when we resume, so in our country, because we have a sort of a partial isolation, it's not for everybody, um, but the vast majority, um, where where students are at home, being homeschooled, I think there are, for the very best, there are going to be some amazing, amazing outcomes of students who are progressing way beyond what their teachers would have necessarily expected. Um, at the same time, there are some students who are basically doing nothing um, in terms of academic or developmental education. It's not that they're doing nothing. It's just that the skills which they're learning are very difficult to identify. So if you've got a couple of kids who are at home just apparently messing around, the question is, how can we identify what they've actually learned um, and how can we start looking that into the skill sets and and seeing if we can if we can utilize what they have learned, although they're apparently messing around in terms of their development, because it's definitely there. It's just because we have separated their development in the day with the development, which I can see because they're in my school. I think one of our challenges is to create a new baseline assessment on a set of very different measures. Uh, which are probably more to the measures of the development of the person necessarily than the development of the person who can get through the SATs.
0: And I guess the reason we've ended up in this scenario is because, because everyone wanted sort of a global set of, of data that we could say, and now this country is different to this country and we're winning or we're losing or whatever it happens to be. That's a really hard thing to implement, isn't it?
1: Well, it doesn't fit nicely into <clears throat> the sort of things which Andreas Slicer, which was saying, you know, they're the kind of things that they're easiest to test and easiest to measure and not sufficient to prepare young people for the future. So I think we just have to accept it. We have to we have to have more judgment. Um, and uh, I mean, you're you're the you're the parent of three children. The children presumably are quite different. They are indeed. Absolutely. And there are some who there is one who might be slightly more school oriented and another who might be slightly less school oriented and slightly more more other oriented. The question is whether you think that each is going to be
0: successful in their future lives. And I think I think they all will be and and as you just said all for different reasons because the the path that they take and the the interest they take in what they're doing comes from a different standpoint um, and they utilize what they've got around them in a different way. And so the, uh, the,
1: the 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 great desire to have something nice and simple and standardised, so you can say they're a grade one or a grade two, um, is preposterous. And I think that's what primary school primary teachers know. They know that you know little Johnny, okay, he might not be very good at school, but my god, he's going to be successful. Um, and Frida, who's great at school, I'm really worried about.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, um, and one one really interesting thing that I always remember having had my conversation with John Coe, who was obviously a founder member of Nape, was he was really keen on the fact that there's this sort of harm, harmonious community between school and parents, um, and the community at large, and and it's it's the influences we all bring in together which supports the child to be who they are, and I and I think that's a really really important thing. But it is also the thing which is really, really hard to do these days because the the essence is on the test. It's on the data. And also it's assuming that every child has that support beyond school that they need in order to get the, that support. They need to be successful in whatever terms that happens to be.
1: I think that's right. Um,
0: it, it's not helped by schools
1: denying access. Um, through the gates, through the sign-ins, through the lock-ins, and, and so on. I mean, there is something preposterous about, about having to queue up as a parent in order the gates open, and then you can see your child. I mean, that just seems to be nonsense. Uh, on the other hand, um, sometimes you know, parental evenings are terribly badly attended, because, again, you know, if you're a parent and you haven't done very well at school, the last thing is you want to do is go back to school to talk <laughs> about your kid. Because, you know, this is a place where those those blighters failed me effectively. And, and, and you cast it as an institution. You can see that with traveler families where where at primary there's there tends to be much more relationship developing, And then secondary, it finishes off and a lot of an awful lot um, just don't pitch up to secondary anymore because they don't see it as relevant, and they don't like the teachers, and the teachers don't like them. Um, Even to the extent that I know a few academy chains who actively discourage any looked-after kids from, um, from being in their schools. So we have all sorts of differentiations as people start looking, schools themselves start looking at a student and their background and deciding whether that student is going to be beneficial for the school not whether the school is gonna be beneficial for the student. So it's all the wrong way around. Um, And we know at secondary level, especially that a lot of students know they're being taught stuff, um, not for their own benefit, it's for the school's benefit. I'm afraid data is data um, and not a lot of data is information. Um, You know, we're in the world where it is possible to have big data um, and there's no reason at all why schools can't can't actually take advantage of seeing well, what's happened to the alumni? What's where? Where are they? Uh, let's get them back in to say, how could how could how could you improve? How could you help me improve the school experience? Hardly any schools do that. Certainly not at primary level, um, whereas they could. Um, at primary level it's quite, you know, there is a there is a possibility of taking taking some students. Um, who used to be in your school and they're now at different levels of secondary to say, how how could we improve your experience um, for managing the transition from primary to secondary or to manage our own primary experience? How can we do that? So we're not taking advantage of of, of information. And, and, and in a lot of cases, the only reason why schools look at the data and rely on it is they know that other people are looking at that same data. So it's not necessarily informing them as to what to do better. It's informing them in in how to comply, and how to do better at whatever is the Ofsted requirement or whatever is the is the requirement of Progress Eight or Sats. So so it's not right, and that's why you end up with Johnny doesn't do very well, but I know he's going to be successful. And Frida, um, I'm really worried about.
0: Yeah, and I, and I really like. I I like that that analogy as you said in terms of some pupils coming back because of course mate goes from birth to thirteen and, and one of the things you often see in things like christmas fairs um in primary schools is you get the children that have left just that year before Mm -hmm. wanting to come back experiencing what they feel maybe they've lost in terms of those great memories they've got some of the things that primary schools do but still wanting to be involved as that slightly older child and i think i think there's a real you get a really good take up and a really good um, amount of information because i think they'd be willing to share those experiences
1: i think they want to share those experiences and the question is You know, what can the schools do at both levels, actually, Um, at at what can what can those schools who are getting those conversations with their alumni do to improve their experience, their development of those children? And what can they do to influence the next phase at secondary about how to take advantage of the skill set which all these kids are bringing to you? And and I think part of the problem is that a lot of primary schools now, you see, some primary schools are just a, a hell of a lot of primary school teachers are absolutely amazing, brilliant people. Um, and 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 it doesn't necessarily show in their data, but it does show in the quality of the conversations which those children can have, the questioning skills, their ability just to be nice and to deal with people. And I think the fear is that the more that that happens, the more that they expose those students to a problem when they go into secondary, which is requiring compliance and is nailing them down. And it's actually driving. All, it's like Ken Robinson's, you know, who, who I know reasonably well uh, when he was saying, you know, what we're doing is we're just driving out any of the, the fun we're driving out the creativity. And schools should be fun at all levels. They should be fun at primary. They tend to be funnier, play, more fun places at primary. Um, and they should be fun at secondary. You know, you shouldn't be told, shut up, sit down, do this, do that. It's ridiculous.
0: <laughs> and um, and the, the people listening, you know, if you're following Nate, then you're going to be these kind of teachers who are, who are looking for answers in terms of, of how they can do that. What would be your suggestion in terms of how is a... A community, certainly in in this information age, in terms of how you go about supporting yourself to be more of that teacher and and being empowered to be more of that type of teacher, and actually feeling confident that you can bring that either into your classroom or try and develop it within your school itself.
1: Well, so so I've got a slight um, bias in in the way I'll answer that. I I'm continually interested in people who have become successful. Despite necessarily um, their upbringing or what they've chosen to do, so I have that channel, Mark. I, don't, I have I have a YouTube channel which I've called Inspiring Resources, and because there are lots called that, I've put Marcus Orlovsky at the end of it. And I've got about oh, 100, 150 interviews published so far out of about the 500 which I've got. Which I, I'm using this opportunity to edit some more got a wonderful interview with krasima uh, krasima pram who is a neuroscience reconstructive surgeon um, in berlin and she started off at university doing a degree in japanese and then after she got her first she decided actually i want to do something else um, and so she started to study medicine um, and uh, she qualified as a doctor And then she decided, I want to do a master's in neuroscience. So she did a master's in neuroscience and along the way also um, did a first degree in psychology. And then she did a PhD in neuroscience and then she set up a lab. Now, if you go back and you say, if you want to be one one of the top neuroscience reconstructive surgeons, how should you start off? I don't think many schools would say with Japanese. I, you know, I, 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 I think they would say, well, let's have a look at the data, you know, and so you've got to do science. I, well, yes, maybe, but much more than that. Um, and I think and I think that's it. The world is moving so fast that the world is moving, moving away from those academic boundaries. I don't I don't think that that applies anymore. And so when you go all the way back to what NAPA is doing. You know, let's let's continue to create the extreme creativity in kids and and to enable kids to really question at all times who they are, and what they're going to be and not be worried about it. So if a a six year old says, you know, I want to be a rocket scientist and I want to go to Mars, people should go. So what we need in order to do that rather than, oh, that's a lovely idea. Let's move on. Now go back to your reading. Which I think an awful lot of primary do do that, and they do enable that to be developed, and we have to we have to get that instilled sufficiently strong that those kids can deal with the with the compartmentalization which is going to happen to them when they get to secondary, and maybe there's a whole something there about preparation for secondary, which primary should be doing rather than spending their final year on the sats.
0: That's very true, and, and the other thing I really loved about that is the fact that. I always think they should take away the sense of you've now made your choice, you know, whether that's um, primary or as you you say, as you start to go into secondary as well, you know, it's not like you've made your decision at the age of 10 11 12 about the sorts of things you're going to do in life and that's it for the rest of your life the fact is you can train in anything you want whenever you want to do it you have the opportunity these days like never before to to immerse yourself in a subject or or be mentored by somebody in any given field and And I think, as soon as you feel like it's not about this one exam on this one day, that kind of releases a, a tension which is w- inherent within the system, which I think frees students up to feel like they could be the person that goes to Mars or you know or solve some kind of um ecological thing that needs to be sorted in the coming years.
1: Well, you're absolutely right, but tell that to the secondary school teacher who's under pressure from their head um <clears throat> because their exam results are not as good as anticipated or expected and tell that to the head who's under pressure from the mat who are who are putting him under him or her under pressure Um, and you'll see why um, it's very hard to implement because of these various pressures which are applied and passed down the line i remember going to um to a school to um run some sessions for some year what was at year nines, year tens, year twelves, year 11s and twelves, separate sessions. So I, I did four one-hour talks. Um, and it was in the winter, it was pretty cold. Um, I went into the hall and all the kids were in their blazers. They had to take their coats off. These were year tens, they all had to take their coats off. Um, the teachers, meanwhile, were all in, uh, in their coats and parkas and, and, uh, and stuff and puffer jackets. Um, and the head um, then stood up in front of all of them and said, we are in trouble with offset because of you. and started blaming them. <laughs> and I thought, you blighter, you know. <laughs> Why don't you just recognize that just right now I'm looking at you and you are all warm and all the kids are freezing. <laughs> you know, this is ridiculous. Um, and, uh, and I think, think there is a certain amount of humility. I mean, if we just take data. There are about 1.5 million organizations in the united kingdom that's organizations of all sorts from lawyers to to florists to doctors to medical practitioners to practicing companies um, to scientists to people at waitress 1.4 1.5 million and uh, if you take entry points into organizations there are probably about five major entry points there's one in sales uh one in Tech. One in in production, you know, actually doing stuff. Uh, one in management, and one in finance. So let's take five. So 1.4 million times five um, gives you eight million. So eight million opportunities. Well, come on, you know, students aren't going to be able to spend the time to learn what those are or identify them. And neither are, neither are careers advisors or teachers. So it's going to be a bit of guesswork. It's going to be a bit of luck. Um, so that same bit of luck can be applied to that that girl who wants to be the first astronaut into Mars. Who knows? You might be. Um, or that same girl who wants to be president of the United States. Who knows? Right now you can't because you haven't been born on US soil,
0: but that might change. So So why not? and just just to finish off and and i think this is this is an important thing as well is the fact that i always sort of come down to these sort of two areas that would make the biggest difference one is the thing that we can do today personally which might be taking responsibility for how we talk to the the people in our class or as a parent how we decide to frame education and, and and make the most of all of those things and the other is is that we are stuck within an education system, which is in all the ways that we've spoken about so far. And I think inherently, the only way that is going to change in a dramatic fashion is is one embracing... The fact that you know the sorts of skills that we have we've demonstrated in the last few weeks, which is when when teachers are given the ability to have to do something in a crisis, they manage to do it in an amazing way and show what is possible when the government need them to take take the lead, which I think is what's happened as we've come into this current crisis um but also actually having enough of ability to stand far enough back to know that actually having a system which changes every few years or having a political cycle of five years where the goalposts can change. When you have a child going through an education system of of many years more than that, it's never going to work. It needs to be a much more long-term idea of what it is that we want to achieve.
1: Yeah, look, the education system in the UK goes back to what, the Forster Act 1880-something? Um, which was you know, which was where we introduced Easter breaks and summer breaks for the planting and the harvesting, um, and we've kept those along. And I think that in the 1800s, 1900s, the purpose of education was to develop a compliant workforce so that they could do what they're told. Um, the more affluent um, education was about how to develop the skill sets to manage the workforce. So we got we got slight differences and and that' sort of continued so in schools today we are really if you take most state schools, whether they like it or not, they're really developing compliant people um, but I don't think that's what we need anymore today um, and and just this last <clears throat> coronavirus outbreak so if you go back Um, and listen to some of the environmentalists to say, we have to really change what we're doing. We have to use less of this and less of that and look after the environment. Um, And people say, well, it's not possible to get change like that happening. It can't be done, you know. And the coronavirus has caused people to radically change. You know, stop going to school, stop dealing with people, stop meeting people, stop meeting people. Almost instantaneous, so, things can be done much faster than we thought can happen. But the upshot of it is, is that, is that we've created the environment where people are genuinely questioning. When we go back, I think an awful lot of people say, well, do I really want to go to school? I'm learning so much outside school, I'm much better than school. And I think a lot of teachers will say, I don't know if I really want to go back. <laughs> Um, and a lot of people, you know, in, in retail will be saying, I don't know if this shop is useful anymore, you know, because it's it's all sort of working. I think a lot of people are going to do the same thing. Um, the question is, what's going to pop out of all of those challenges? Well, we can see now the online retailers are going to do hugely success, are, are already doing really successfully. But equally, well, we're not buying as much because we're probably not consuming as much or throwing as much away. So waste, I think, will change as a result of this. Uh, I think think the high street will change in a number of ways Um, from the old high street names, which we have seen, I think will start going away. Um, I think we're becoming much more international because whilst we are online, we are automatically becoming more international because there's no no geographical restriction on who we sign up to. Um, And I think that is going to filter through. So I think it will be a different place. Um, I think primary is probably going to be better, better equipped to deal with it. I think I think secondary is going to be terribly wrong-footed.
0: And just as we finish off now, point people in the direction where they could find out more about you and some of those resources that you said um, you've been creating that can really support them.
1: Um, well, I interview I interview people at all different levels. Um, the program which I which I run for students involves taking students to meet in interesting people. I call them interesting. Um, and I record all those um, all those people in two, three, four-minute chunks on a on a, a channel called Inspiring Resources by Marcus Orlovsky. Um, our organization, Bryanston Square, which I founded, has got its own YouTube channel called Bryanston Square, all one word. Um, and just by just by en passant, I had a stroke uh, five years ago, which really incapacitated me terribly. Um, and I was told, I'll take about a year you might make a near normal recovery, but it won't be that normal. You'll have quite a few deficiencies. Um, and I was scheduled to do the opening keynote for the NAHT annual conference, uh, 16 days after my stroke. And of course I did because I just can't stand, um, cancelling things. So I had to quickly learn how to walk and talk and do all this sort of stuff. Uh, so I could get on the stage and talk for an hour. Um, and so I've, um, I've published I, I've published a lot of interviews with me and the people around me to try and help other people who've had, uh, have had strokes, realize that you don't need to necessarily follow the pathway. And I put that up on, on a different channel called Marcus Orlovsky. And I've had a heck of a lot of stroke survivors and people who have observed their friends and colleagues and parents and so on having strokes, um, saying, gosh, because actually, I had a stroke, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't sort of exhibit any of the characteristics, you know, no drooping, no, none of that stuff, I was just confused. And it was a really bad stroke. So, um, so I think, I think for all of us, uh, there is the opportunity to, to radically do something different. Um, even though other people experts will tell
0: you you can't well marcus thank you so much for spending time and sharing your wisdom with us today and um and i think we've 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 almost gone completely full circling knowing that actually just doing what we're told or or expecting it to be what people say is actually not the case we have much more control of our own destiny than we think we do and and hopefully we've managed to pick some of that apart today and, and give people some inspiration going forward thank you very much